So Emily began this series on Sabbath and savoring life, uh, and the gist of the series is, is essentially this, that the Sabbath command is born of God's desire that we have space to savor life, and the idea of savoring implies focused attention, right? So I, I've got like three different ways or modes of being for eating dessert, um, uh, the, 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 triple, the triple A approach here. This is just like a homiletic delight right now. I'm having so much fun. Um, there's acquisitive eating. So that's, I do this a lot with desserts where you, you get the dessert and you get the first bite and then you're like, it tastes so good, you want to get to that second bite. So you're thinking about the second bite in the first bite. Once you got that second bite, you're thinking about the third bite and then it's gone. And it's gone so fast. There have been times when I've had dessert where I've been like, what happened? What? And then I look at Julia, you know, with my doe eyes. And she goes, no, no, no. Don't punish me for you eating your dessert fast. So there's the acquisitive eating. I think, I think, I'm wondering if guilt induces acquisitive eating. Like sometimes I've had that thought of like, oh, I really don't need this. I'm getting up there in years. I got to be careful about, you know, my calories and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I really shouldn't eat that. That can't be good for my heart. That can't be good to have that stuff inside my body. And then I say, there's the only solution is to get rid of this temptation. And then I go into acquisitive eating mode and I, I get right through it. It's like, thank God, okay, we dealt with that, you know. <laughs> what willpower. <laughs> and then there's automatic eating. And I don't, this is just happens to me sometimes when I just, I, there have been times that I get a dessert, I think, it's gone. Everyone else has dessert. And I'm like, how come I didn't get my dessert? And then I realized, oh, I ate my dessert but my brain was in automatic mode. I didn't even have a moment with it. And then there's appreciative eating. This is like contemplative, you know, where you take a bite, you taste it, you savor it, you enjoy it, you comment on it. You know, that was, that's delicious. I love the almond notes in that. Uh, you know, you take a picture of it and then you post it on Facebook and you wait for a couple of likes and then you take your second by, you know, that's the appreciative, contemplative way. And I'm still, I'm still striving for that. I just, I, I haven't, I don't achieve it very often and I, I wish I could. The series is about that, how to eat dessert uh, <laughs> applied, applied to life. Um, so last Sunday, Emily taught from um, Ecclesiastes, book of Ecclesiastes. What a hoot. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of three books in the wisdom section of the Bible. It's called the wisdom literature. It's, it's Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs. There's lots of wisdom spread throughout the Bible, but these are the books that focus on it. Um, and the author in Ecclesiastes is wrestling with how meaningless and fleeting, his, his phrase for it is life is like a vapor, uh, how, how, how meaningless or absurd or ephemeral um, life can be. And his perspective is essentially, you know, there's enough unavoidable suffering in life, so eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, when the, whenever the opportunity presents itself. So you have this refrain of like, eat, drink, and be married throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. There's also like, enjoy your, enjoy your wife, enjoy your work as much as you can. And this is like the light in the gloom of the book of Ecclesiastes, the philosopher's book of the Bible. Um, I think this like life-savoring perspective that we've been trying to highlight 
in the series is actually obscured by some very common and very weird ways of thinking about God. Um, you know, essentially, there's a way of doing faith that enhances our life-saving ability, and then there's also a way of doing faith that uh, deadens our life-saving ability. And I think maybe intuitive, you might have a sense of that. Um, in, the, in the Adam story, in Genesis 2 and 3, Adam just means humanity. It's not even um, a proper name in, in the strict sense. In the Adam story of Genesis 2 and 3, the human, uh, humans find themselves in this lush garden with God um, as their neighbor. Like, God is just a character in the story. Um, he, he kind of interacts with them like a neighbor does, comes and goes, is, is in a sense always there, but not always, you know, uh, visibly present. Um, and the humans are in a, in a childlike state. It's before things have really taken that bad turn. And their neighbor God identifies two trees at the center of the garden in Genesis 2. It's uh, the tree of life the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the first hint that the Bible is a very subtle book. And um, it's, it's a subversive book. And it's a book that does unexpected things, uh, given that it's now a sacred text. So given the explosion of life in, in Genesis 1, which is just, it's all happening, it's breaking out, God's grooving on it, he's delighted by it, it's, life is manifesting in all its different forms, the tree of life clearly represents participating in this phenomenon that is life, that it, participating in eating from the tree of life is, yeah, participate in being alive. Um, it's something we share with every creature. It's every life form has life, and we're, we're part of this bigger story. And then the odd thing is that the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, seems to represent stuff that we're supposed to care a lot about if we're really into God. It's like the knowledge of good and evil. Like, who wouldn't want that? Like, it's really important to know the difference between uh, uh, good and evil so that you can discriminate between the two and choose the good and oppose the evil, right? That just seems like exactly what actually what religion seems to be. It's supposed to be about. But the odd thing is that the warning from the neighbor God in the garden with the humans is stay away from that. And I, I think it's like a subversive thing in the Bible itself saying like, Something can really go wrong with religion, and please stay away with it, to stay away from it. It can get so confused with life, it can actually keep you from participating in life. I think this story in Genesis 2 and 3 is so important that Israel, the Jewish people, have just been in an ongoing debate about what the heck it could possibly mean. And the New Testament is part of that ongoing debate. There's a Jew named Saul who became known by his Gentile name Paul who became a follower of the Jew named Jesus and Paul wrote a letter to the a handful of uh, house churches that were forming in the, um, uh, in, the Ro in the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome. And this letter, the letter to the Romans, really can be read as an extended midrash. It's just like a, uh, that's the Jewish term for interpretation of the Adam story. Like every chapter seems to have an echo of Genesis 2 and 3 in the letter to the Romans. In Romans 8, 
Um, God uses this really wonderful phrase. Um, Paul says, God wants to bring us into the glorious freedom of the children of God. God, um, like, wouldn't you like to have a parent that wanted to bring you into freedom? <laughs> Rather than often children experience parents as like, like it, it, you know, inhibiting that, slowing that process down as much as possible. But here's a, here's a parent, God, who wants to bring us into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is a direct echo of the Adam story in Genesis um, in that story, the first three words from this neighbor God character to the humans, that's before they got fancy with the knowledge of good and evil bit, are what? You are free. First words of God to humanity, you are free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day you do, you die. So this seems to be a warning against something that many would say is the primary concern of religion. So it's a very startling opening to the Bible, uh, which was the white side. Um, in 1967, there were, you know, in July, there were helicopters overhead, there were armed vehicles and tanks and going down convoy of... Uh, Eight Mile, it was just on the Detroit side of Eight Mile, but, but I watched what everyone in my neighborhood called the riots on television. I, I you know, wasn't around my neighborhood. It was just something I was watching happening in my hometown in like other neighborhoods with people who didn't look like me. And, um, you know, there's been a recent attempt to delegitimize the press, and so it inspired me to um, actually pay some money for my news. So I got a subscription to the Washington Post, and I got a subscription to uh, the Michigan Chronicle. Uh, Michigan Chronicle is Detroit's paper run by uh, African Americans. And as I was getting, getting the um, issues mailed to my home week after week, I would see story after story starting up... Um, you know, recently about the 67 rebellion, not riot, rebellion. And that, that term represents a principled descent from the majority view. It's, it's, a, it's saying, it's characterizing what I learned to call the Detroit riots as an explosion of rage by people under the thumb of white supremacy run riot. And if you know anything about the Detroit police force, especially at that time, uh, it, it was uh, racism um, embodied and running riot. So minorities know just intuitively what it is to adopt a posture of principled uh, dissent in the context of a differing majority. But the thing is, principled dissent is part of the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the Bible includes voices of principled dis dissent regarding majority views that are also reflected in the Bible. So, you know, people who like thump the Bible instead of reading the Bible don't really understand this. But the Song of Songs, it's an erotic love poem in which the woman has like the primary voice. They have like an absolutely egalitarian relationship. The Song of Songs is a principled descent against the gender hierarchy that uh, much of the Bible assumes and some of the Bible promotes. 
Um, Ecclesiastes, what uh, uh, Emily introduced, Ecclesiastes yesterday. I think um, Andy Deeb, I convinced Andy Deeb to give a, uh, uh, take a whack at preaching. So he's, I think he's going to preach on August 13th. He's, uh, he goes to, he's, he's our seminary, he's our guy in seminary out in California. And before he goes back, we're going to make him preach. And you're all, you're all going to be like really awesome uh, listeners and Jim and all that kind of stuff. Um, Ecclesiastes is part of that wisdom literature uh, that includes, I mentioned, Job and Proverbs. Actually, two of the three wisdom books in the Bible, Job and Ecclesiastes, are a principal descent of the wisdom consensus of the rest of Scripture, found especially in the book of Proverbs and in the Psalms and scattered throughout the Bible. So you'd have to read Ecclesiastes and Proverbs side by side to see that their understanding of wisdom is in direct contradiction often. Um, I think the letter of James is a principal descent from the writings of Paul on justification. And there are many attempts to try to put those two perspectives together and, and you can turn yourself into a pretzel and do it. But I think James is principal descent of a more majority view of the New Testament represented in the writings of Paul. So Gentile Christianity, which is what most of us, if we have any, you know, dipped our toes into the pool of Christianity, or we, we cut our teeth on Gentile Christianity, um, meaning Christianity that's sort of absent the voice of, of Jewish people, is really horrible on principal descent. It's like essentially repressed this aspect of the glorious freedom of the children of God. We Gentiles, we call it heresy. Uh, and which is a, a big improvement that we just exclude people and get snarky on Facebook rather than burn dissenters at the stake like we did for a long time. You know, it's like slow progress. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's, let's just measure this progress in centuries. Uh, the freedom of principal descent is also a move that we can make with God. We can, we can be dissenters uh, on things with God. Uh, Abraham exercised this in Genesis 19. Won't go into the details. The prophets at different times exercised uh, principled dissent. Um, it's, it's kind of depicted comically in the, in the uh, Jonah story. Um, the tree, this is like tree of life, not tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Principal descent. You know, I, I, um, I went through what now seems a ridiculously long process of changing my mind on LGBTQ. But, you know, in my gut, and I, I kind of alluded to this in, in the book I wrote, but I, I didn't really highlight it for maybe obvious reasons. But in my gut, before I did all the, the you know, what a Jew would call midrash, like the work of interpreting and comparing interpretations of Scripture and trying to wrestle down to an interpretation that you think is valid, um, before I did all that, I knew that if I couldn't find my way through the Bible on this, if I concluded that all the clobber texts, you know, the handful of them uh, used against gay people, um, if all of those are like supposed to apply to the LGBTQ people that I knew, that I would just practice civil disobedience uh, to what I thought the Bible taught. Like I had kind of settled that in, in my mind. Um, 
You know, when I was 20 years old and I was a new Jesus freak, uh, I, went to a, uh, I went to a reformed church in town and uh, it was like an old Dutch reformed church and they'd never seen anyone Dutch, you know, but I was, had kind of light brown hair, so I kind of fit in and I met with the minister and said, we're, we're, don't people join churches? How do you join this church? And, and Sorry, if, if I were convinced that this were true, I would just, I would just dissent, no, no, no. Um, and we have that freedom as children of God. I think God respects a move like that in our relationship with him. I think God is more interested, if the Bible is any guide, God is more interested in engagement with us than in like compliance and, and especially secretly resentful compliance, which is the form of compliance that's like religious, right? In the story of the prodigal son, the younger son, the older son, you know, the younger son is like the black sheep, the bad, the, the bad actor in the family. The older brother is like doing everything perfect, but at the end of the story, you realize the older brother has been lost at home, which is even, you know, more lost than being lost away from home. And he's been practicing uh, secret resentful compliance and it's just like it doesn't it's there's no connection with God in that and God wasn't getting any the father in the story wasn't getting any connection from the older son as well so the second aspect of the glorious freedom the children of God that I wanted to highlight was um, so that we can kind of approach faith in this life-savering way is the freedom to receive, nurture, and pursue happiness. So if you Google happiness and Judaism, you see all this great stuff. You see the nine Hebrew words for happiness. It's just like, you know, like the Eskimos have like 47 words for snow, and, you know, we have two or something. There are nine Hebrew words for happiness. Um, you, you see in the front page of the Google search sayings of the rabbis like, happiness itself is our service to God. Okay. Um, there's a, a leader in the field of uh, positive psychology, which is essentially the study of happiness, saying many of the ideas that quote-unquote discovered by modern psychologists had actually been present for thousands of years in traditional Jewish sources. That what, a, what a fun series that would be using the, the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. If you Google happiness in Christianity, you get all these articles that are suspicious of happiness, that want to draw like a sharp distinction between happiness and joy. I mean, you've perhaps heard sermons about there's happiness, yeah, but then there's joy, that's what we really want, and that are like warning against the wrong kinds of happiness as like the lead assertion um, that uh, assert happiness is not the goal. Um, here's one, uh, an article by Eugene Peterson, pretty good, pretty good writer, um, actually read the article. It's not nearly as, as bad as the title. It's probably Christianity Today um, printed it, so I'm, I'm picturing that an editor made the title. The title of the article is The per Pursuit of Happiness is a Dead End. Like, don't even go there. I'm like, what, is, what does that even mean? You know, like, like I'm getting hungry, and I've like, I'm, I want to pursue lunch when I'm done. 
and and like I shouldn't do that because God's more important than lunch or you know like I, I just don't get this like don't make this your aim don't like we're always we have aims all the time and we we can't get anywhere if we unless we have aims and as we pursue our aims and the pursuit of happiness is a is a dead end. By the way, Oceana and I are going out to lunch after. I'm married to an Episcopal priest who like gabs with people forever. They have coffee hours that last twice as long as their church service afterwards. And, and so she's not going to be home for a long time. So if anyone wants to go out to lunch with me and Oceana, let us know. Well, let's go out. I'll, I'll pay for me and Oceana. You pay for yourself. But we'll, <laughs> we could go. There's Morgan and York down there. There's Fraser's if you want a beer, you know happy to go out to lunch with you and Oceana is 18 and she's going off to college and so you may not see her for a while she's going to Michigan State too and that's a long way away and um (laughs) but she's outgoing so you'll enjoy Oceana if you go out to lunch with us so I'm trying to get some I'm trying to not be a loser I want to have some going to lunch with but um what is it about what is it about Google and happiness and Christianity that's reflecting something about the way Christians have developed a kind of like really mixed feelings about, about happiness. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yes. Is this? Oh, good. I didn't need that whole last section. I'm just naming it. A religious suspicion of pursuing happiness. And yes, we all know people who make short-sighted moves in the name of happiness usually to get relief from some difficult situation they're in, only to make themselves or maybe key other people in their lives way more miserable in the longer run. Um, We find such people in the mirror. (laughs) Uh, Given, yes. But this fear of the pursuit of happiness is, I think, a sure mark of religion, um, not a life-savoring God connection. It's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, not the fruit of the tree of life. If you've experienced any intense religious oppression, uh, you will just know in your bones the difference between these two. So I think um, maybe it was a couple of months ago, Emily, um, my co-pastor, our our pastor Emily, is not here today, um, mentioned I think in her her story of, of coming out and uh, meeting Rachel. I met Rachel, this was, would have been in 2014, I guess, 2014. Um, she met Rachel and she was like, uh-oh, I'm in love. What do I do now? And how she broke the news to me. It was actually just after I'd come back from my honeymoon. Um, she broke the news to me and I broke down and cried in her office. And the reason I broke down and cried in her office was not, uh-oh, the bleep is about to hit the fan. It's that I, I, I literally saw something in Emily's face. I, I saw a happiness that I hadn't seen before. And I felt as though I were looking at Emily for the first time. And it was like, just like, who wouldn't want to be Emily, you know? It was, it was, she was just so happy, and I was just, my mirror neurons, where I was, I was just so happy for her, I just broke down and cried. And that was a, that was a sign of discernment for me, for, of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
you know, as long as we're getting personal, uh, what the heck, um, there aren't that many people here, it's a little easier. Uh, <laughs> a year or so earlier, so that was 2014 in, in uh, I, be I believe, July that Emily broke that news to me. Um, uh, a year or so earlier, I had met uh, Julia, um, uh, my wife now, Julia, uh, and that was like seven months after Nancy had died. Um, and there's kind of like the one-year rule, you know. Uh, but this was seven months, and uh, James Rodenheiser said, you should really have coffee with this person. I thought it was innocent. I had coffee with her, and I was like, uh-oh, I like her. I, I, re I mean, I like her in like an, a like-her sort of way. It's like, uh, is, that o is that okay? So Paul Sonda, uh, who was a, a real support to me um, in that period, uh, Paul lost his first wife, Ellen, um, and he met with me after Nancy died a few times. And one of the things he told me was that if you decide to remarry, you will lose friends over it, and you won't be able to um, predict which friends you will lose. And I thought, you, Paul, you don't know my friends. And he was absolutely he was absolutely right. It's a big adjustment when, when that happens. Um, you know, the church I was serving at the time was rallying around me as a suddenly aggrieved widow and many other people were processing their grief because my wife was also a pastor in the church and, you know, people grieve in different ways and there's different levels of intensity and at different paces. And I just kind of, in my gut, I knew that if I got involved with someone, this would really complicate the grief of a lot of other people around me. It's a funky thing when you go through something so intensely personal as a pastor, like as part of this big community where there's a spotlight on you. And, and I, I, I also knew it would um, complicate the grief of some of my kids, and who were actually great about all this, um, more or less, eventually. And, and, I, and I also knew that it would throw... Uh, a big emotional wrench in a very dicey change process that didn't see, seem to have any margin for error, just me. And, but without going into details that would be way too personal to share, it was as if in that time frame, God picked me up by the collar, lifted me up like a mobster in a, in a mobster movie, and said, I want you to be happy, this is your business and nobody else's, proceed. And then put me down. You know, it was like my Scaramucci, you know, <laughs> you know encounter with God. It's like, oh, 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 okay. And one of the Hebrew words for happiness is sesson, uh, S-A-S-S-O-N in the English transliteration. And it refers to a sudden unexpected happiness. And I think it was in that time frame that I stumbled across a poem by Jane Kenyon. Jane Kenyon is a noted uh, poet who actually went to Ann Arbor Pioneer High School, was at U of M for a while, I think. And uh, let me just read you this poem, Happiness, by Jane Kenyon. The um, story of the prodigal son is in the background of this, uh, this poem. You'll probably note some of the allusions. There's just no accounting for happiness or the way it turns up like a prodigal who comes back to the dust at your feet, having squandered a fortune far away? How can you not forgive? You make a feast in honor of what was lost and take from its place the finest garment, which you save for an occasion you could not imagine. And you weep night and day 
to know that you were not abandoned, that happiness saved its most extreme form for you alone. No, happiness is the uncle you never knew about who flies a single-engine plane to the grassy landing strip, hitchhikes into town, and inquires at every door until he finds you asleep mid-afternoon as you so often are during the unmerciful hours of your despair. Jane Kenyon suffered from extended bouts of uh, depression throughout her life. She was a poet. That's her job. (laughs) Happiness, it comes... To the monk in his cell, it comes to the woman sweeping the street with a birch broom, to the child whose mother is passed out from drink, it comes to the lover, to the dog chewing a sock, to the pusher, to the basket maker, and to the clerk stacking cans of carrots in the night. Then she goes, poetic deep. It even comes to the boulder in the perpetual shade of pine barrens, to rain falling on the open sea, to the wine glass weary of holding wine. So I think, I think Kenyon, um, K-E-N-Y-O-N, if you want to um, find it and, and get it for yourself, Jane Kenyon, I think Kenyon would have identified very much with the author of Ecclesiastes. Um, we do spend much of our days in a state of uh, existential misery. Things happen that make no sense, and they happen all the time. So if the treasures of happiness are buried in this world, it's a minefield and we traverse it at midnight and we're blindfolded is how it feels sometimes. This is Kenyon kind of stirring herself to thinking of happiness as something that also pursues her as well as something that we pursue. This is Kenyon stirring herself to look for happiness like a poet looks for beauty or like a photographer, like uh, my wife Julie is a photographer and like... She's got all these flower names for weeds, like Queen Anne's Lace is a weed, but it's a flower, and she, you know, stop by the side of a road, and she'll take pictures of, like, invasive species that State of Michigan's trying to get rid of, and Queen Anne's Lace, and it's beautiful, and she sees something in it, and she photographs it. This is what Kenyon is, is doing, like, looking for happiness and trying to make herself open to happiness wherever it can be found. And I think behind this vision that's reflected in this poem vision of God, uh, not unlike Adam and Eve's neighbor in the garden, who just wants them to go for life, wants them to participate in life, and is warning them against anything else, uh, even things that seem like they involve him uh, as phony fake alternatives to that. So we're going to have a little time of quiet reflection and uh, as we do. And I thought that today maybe what we could do is... Um, you just take a couple of minutes. Um, I say quiet, not silent, so uh, we all make little noises and stuff. That's fine. Babies exist and have a right to be in the world. <clears throat> um, and uh, when you come in, you know, uh, we, you get those little programs and there's that half sheet and there's that thing where you can fill out three things that you're happy for. And, you know, half the time I don't even think about it. You know, I'm like doing it at the end during a song or something like that because I'm the pastor and I should do these things and be a fine example and blah, blah, blah. Um, but um, I thought it just if we could take some space together just to quiet ourselves and to open our hearts to um, what, what's going on right now in our world that we might notice and 
and appreciate. And if you want to, you can, uh, you can note those down. We have some extra pens. Um, Brad, would you mind passing out the pens there or um, passing the pens to Emily or pass them out? Or just raise your hand if you'd like a pen. If you want to do the jot it down. It actually, it works a little better for your brain if you jot the thing down that you're thankful for so it's not like uh, no one gets graded on this. Um, but... Um, you know, that while you're passing that out, the word ecstasy, you know, that's like a mystical word, ecstasy. The word ecstasy means standing outside of yourself. We think of mystics as like going inside and, you know, interiority and all that stuff. But the word ecstasy is standing outside yourself. And it's, it's like, you know, your inner world is grinding away uh, at, at avoiding threats and anticipating threats and acquiring what you need and worrying that you're not going to get enough and that's just how we much of our inner landscape is occupied but we're participating in well look today we're participating in something so much bigger than what's going on in our heads and it's filled with color and it's filled with uh, wonder and it's filled with good things and and so savoring life actually involves the skill of ecstasy, of like just ignoring what the inside stuff is all churning over and like noticing what's outside, what's out here, what's around us, the cup of coffee that came your way or the you know little garden space that you have in the front of your apartment or this nook in your living room that you really like or the glass of wine that you enjoyed last night or the interaction you had with somebody that was meaningful or whatever so let's just take a couple of minutes be be quiet and um, let our minds wander toward those things and as your mind does uh, go ahead if you've got a pen in that little half sheet and jot those down and if, if you don't want to do that just note them in your mind and then as Caroline leads us in communion you can bring those sheets up and we'll put them on the altar here as kind of our uh, collective thank offering to God so let's just take a deep breath and relax and enjoy a minute to yourself here And just for this next minute, go ahead and take your time. Write those down if you want to, or just note them, savor them, rehearse them in your mind. Those, whatever those three things are. One, two, three, doesn't matter.
Okay, that's about it. So.